Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back for another series of conversations with Rabbi Tatz. The first series was an enormous success and we've had fantastic feedback from around the world. Seeing that we're starting a new series for anyone just joining us now who missed the first one, I'm just going to say a few words of introduction about you if that's okay. Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa and is a world-renowned lecturer and educator, mostly famous for his expertise in medical ethics, and is also the author of many books which have been translated into many languages. Listen to the first episode for the full list of languages, plus German. He's a much sought-after speaker, and his phone is constantly buzzing with people from all backgrounds, eager to hear his advice and his take on their many questions. He's been teaching and inspiring the masses for many, many years, and it's an honor and privilege to be able to sit with you and have these conversations. So welcome, Rabbi Tetz. Thank you. Thank you very much for doing this again. In the next three episodes, we'll be discussing a little-known disease called COVID-19. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it. It's all anyone can speak about and has been the biggest challenge that most of us have faced in our lifetimes, be it with obviously losing loved ones, losing jobs, or just a new way of life which we've never experienced. Much has already been written and said about the psychological effects it has had on us as individuals and as a community. But the thing on everyone's mind currently is the vaccines. Should I get vaccinated? Should I not? So let me start by asking two questions. There is much corruption in science and politics, how are us simpletons, I mean me, not you, how are we supposed to assess the various forms of evidence out there and trust the scientific claims? And number two, there's of course a huge incentive and there's a big race for the vaccine and drug manufacturers to develop the COVID vaccine. How can we trust them if there's such a huge incentive? Okay, those are good and indeed legitimate questions. Thank you, Rabbi Mena, for hosting this uh, series again. I think this is a good opportunity to speak about science and the religious attitude towards science. And indeed, it's a mixed picture. There's a lot of corruption. You're quite correct. Not helped by corruption in the political sector as well. Sometimes, unfortunately, hand in hand. That's quite true. Nevertheless, we have a very clear Jewish approach to these questions. And it's based solidly on a beginning which is rooted deeply in the scientific tradition. And therefore, in general, the direction we'll take through this is to establish the facts as best as we can using the best scientific tools that we have, while remaining very alert to the possible confounders, whether they are corruption, whether they are simply scientific misunderstandings or, or misadventure, which happens all the time as well. So a general answer to your question is, we make use of the best science available. I must say today, the problem of, of corruption and scientific, let's call it misadventure or um, mistakes, has a number of very healthy mitigating factors, if I may say so. One of them is the very awareness itself that these things happen. When you live in a world where there's an artificial, you know, glowing uh, opinion of science that can do no wrong, that's very dangerous. 
But when you live in an environment where it's well known that science has openness to very, very strong subjectivity, to corruption, to financial incentives, etc., that automatically alerts one to these issues. Just to give you an example, as a practicing doctor myself, let's say going back to time when I was, let's say, in general practice or practicing internal medicine, just to give you a simple example, a drug rep, that means a representative of a drug company, will come in and he'll take 15 minutes of my day and he'll give me something nice, a gift, some nice uh, expensive pen or a desk set or something. Can't be too elaborate, of course, otherwise it's a clear bribe. And he will... Um, possibly invite me to some sort of a dinner that his company is running, something like that. It was perfectly acceptable at the time. And then he'll detail a drug. In other words, describe to me the new drug that his company is making. Tell me all about it, including the risks, including the risks. In fact, he'd be highly responsible, and I wouldn't take him seriously if he doesn't. He may be presenting that drug in a more favorable light than perhaps someone else might, if that's true. And that's his job. Now, I, as a practicing doctor, know full well that he's trying to sell me the medicine. And in fact, before he leaves my office, he'll leave me with a set of samples so that I can try the medicine out. Now, the reason I regard that as legitimate is because he and I both know that this is a sales job. And anybody with any sophistication faces a salesman knowing that there's an agenda. And as long as you know the agenda, that's okay. When you go and buy a, a secondhand car, okay, you take with, shall we call it a pinch of salt, what the man tells you. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, deception is only really deception when you don't know it's deception. A lie that claims to be the truth is a problem, but a lie that admits that it's lying, a lie that tells you that the transmission of a story to you by a person who clearly knows that he's got an agenda and you know, and he knows that you know, you know, that's a totally different, totally different thing. You'd have to be extremely gullible to be taken in in those circumstances. So any doctor in an interaction like that will know this may be a useful drug indeed. He may not be disclosing, he may not even know all the risks and harms that are potential here. And I'll look into them, you know. Once I've heard his opinion, I need to hear the other side. Let me point out to you something very interesting in the modern, shall we call it the uh, conspiracy theory world. I get these presentations all the time, videos and recordings and so forth. Almost all of them look at only one side of the issue. They very dramatically present the corruption and the problem. They never take the trouble to interview an expert from the other side. Now, if you're trying to be objective here, why not do that? Give me your conspiracy theory. Give me your political corruption story. That's all very well. And then consult an expert from the other side to hear a potential rebuttal. Why are you afraid of that? So what I'm saying is that when we are aware of vested interests and ulterior motives and agendas, I think that brings about somewhat of a balance. The second point I would say is that being aware not only of the mistakes we can make in science, but also being aware of the corruption is a very important thing. This has come to the fore very strongly in recent years. Just to give you one example, Yale University has a group set up by Professor Miller. She's a very accomplished professor at Yale. She's put together a working group of academics, in fact, heads of medical journals and other experts from around the world, who started, believe it or not, an anti-corruption grading agency which means that they will look at the top drug companies in the world and they'll grade them for ethical behavior. Now, what does it achieve? First of all, it means that the companies are being investigated by outside figures and authorities who have a very strong interest in exposing their corruption because their success depends on showing that they can do that. So it does two things. First of all, it's an avenue of access to seeing where companies are doing things that may be unethical that the public may not know about or skewing figures in their favor. 
The second thing is that it's a very important public relations exercise because these companies get graded in the public domain. In fact, you'll see Roche, AstraZeneca, you'll see all the main, Eli Lilly, you'll see the main names, and then you'll have a scoring. Every few months they get an ethical score. Now the companies scramble like crazy to make sure that they get an adequate ethical score. So there's a lot of pressure on them to behave correctly. So I'm not saying this solves the problem entirely, obviously. I'll mention one other factor while we're at it. People assume that the drug companies are, you know, venal and looking for money and ready to kill people and do unethical experiments. Let me point out to you that nobody's more concerned about getting it right than the drug companies. Because if something untoward happens with one of their drugs or some improper investigation is discovered, they're out of business. And in America, big time. And not only out of business, they can be sued for all they're worth and utterly destroyed on a personal level and on a business level. And therefore, it's naive to think that they are trying to score points and make money, you know, completely regardless of people's health and success. That's absolutely ridiculous. Do they sometimes cut corners? Yes. Do they sometimes feel they'll get away with stuff that will never be known? Yes. But by and large, they're extremely concerned to get things right. Not necessarily because they're highly ethical people, but because the bottom line seriously depends on it. That's a basic introduction to this subject with some of the balancing factors I think that need to be taken into account in in, uh, in this field. Wow. Do you mind to talk about the whole idea of vaccines and medical intervention in general from a, you know, from a Jewish perspective? How do we view that? Okay, this is a broad and complex subject, but let's try and maybe just provide an introduction to it. The Jewish attitude, the Torah attitude, Jewish Orthodox attitude here is very well established. And that is there are certain things in the world that you need to do because you need to do them, take responsibility for them, you make them happen, and others because you have a duty of action. We call that in, in, in Jewish terminology, hishtadlus, hishtadlut, which means you're obliged to do something, but bearing in mind that your action may not be material. For example, earning a living. Our attitude is that what you will earn this year is predetermined on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the year. Does that mean you can lie in bed reading a newspaper all day? No. You're required to get out there and do something about it. Your activity has to be in somewhat schizoid. That means I'm doing this activity because I have to do what's normal, but the money doesn't come from this activity. In other words, you are acting responsibly, very much in line with what it is you expect to earn, while having the faith and humility to know that it's not necessarily your action that yields the result. In medicine, it's exactly the same thing. And many other things too, by the way, getting married, for example. Getting married, we believe that there's a suitable marriage partner set up for you to meet, but you won't meet her lying in bed reading the newspaper, assuming that she'll walk through the door. You need to get out there, look nice, smell nice, smile, and make the right effort to meet a potentially suitable person. And if you do, God may indeed send you the right individual. So on the one hand, the result is coming from God. That's a Jewish belief, and you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be authentically observant if you didn't understand that. And yet you need to make an effort as well. The Rambam, in fact, composed a little prayer that when you take a medicine, you say this little, this little prayer, Hashem, God, may it be your will, that what I'm about to do here heals me. In other words, I'm about to take a little white tablet, and I'm saying, God, I know the healing does not come from this white tablet, it comes from you, but I need to take the tablet. So what you do is you take the tablet, in other words, making a natural effort in the world, what we call Ishtadlis, the same time as acknowledging that the help comes from someplace else. And that is a very, speaking as a doctor, it's well understood in, in the Jewish, in the Orthodox world, that a doctor's attitude should be, I step back from the bedside and say to myself very fervently, whatever I do here makes no difference to this patient at all. This patient's life is not in my hands, it's up to God. That's quite humbling. Indeed. And then I step forward and treat the patient as if every breath depends only on me, with that degree of responsibility, but knowing that it doesn't. 
No abdication of responsibility, of course. Absolutely, total responsibility. And when you work for a company, you're absolutely obliged to work to the highest standard possible, but knowing that the result is not yours. Sound a little schizoid? Possibly. That's the Jewish approach. Of course, when it comes to your free will morally, when it comes to your Torah study and so forth, then it is genuinely your action. Then you can't blame God. In that area, you are genuinely free. So our attitude to taking medicines is that it's necessary. The Rambam, who was a doctor, talking 800 years ago, Rambam writes very dramatically. He says, anyone who says, I will rely on God to heal me and not take a medication, is as foolish as someone who says, I will not eat and God will keep me alive. Rambam writes that medications are natural just like food. Let's also remind ourselves that in his day, virtually every medication was a natural product. I should point out to you even today, 99% of the medicines we use are indeed plant-based natural products. Today, of course, they synthesize. Many of them not derived from plants anymore, but they go back to natural substances. And Maimonides tells us that medicines are as natural as food. And you'd be just as out of order and foolish to say, God will heal me, I trust in him, don't take the medication. People tell me, my child, you know, recommended to have ADHD medication, you know, but I don't want to do it, it's artificial. Well, I think that's irresponsible if it's genuinely indicated. Obviously, we try to get away without medicine when we can. Any doctor will tell you that. But if there's no other option and the child's life will be radically improved by this, why not? Does that mean to say there are no harms and downsides? Absolutely not. There may be. So part of Hishtad Lut would mean to go around the world seeking the best doctor and at the same time believing that God is the ultimate one who is healing. Great question, Rabbi, and of course the ideal and perfect question. What standard of medicine, which medicine do you apply? So here we have a very interesting notion halakhically that you'd need to do what's accepted as mainstream normal. Let me qualify that. This is a, a concept in the Talmud called Dashu Bey Rabim. Dashu Bey Rabim means the majority throng through this area to the point that it becomes normal in society. That applies to many, many things, not only medicine. Can you drive in a car today? Can you get out and drive in your car? It has certain risks. The answer is yes, and not because it's safe enough, but because it's normal enough. Now, I'm not talking about in high-risk places like Tel Aviv when you're driving your car, you know, or maybe New York City. I'm talking about, you know, elsewhere. But you may undertake a scheduled airline flight and uh, eat normal foods, even though there may be additives and chemicals in the food, not because they're safe enough, but because they're normal enough. And therefore, when it comes to medicine, a consensus of expert opinion that defines the norm in your time and place is what you're obliged to do. Does that mean it's absolutely correct and will be proven correct down the line? No. In fact, very interesting. We know that most medicines that are accepted five, ten years down the line, they are completely out of fashion and may even be criminally you know, harmful. That's irrelevant. God runs the world according to the best standards that we have in our time and place. I'm not saying this leaves no place for alternative medicines. They may be broadly enough accepted under certain circumstances to be used. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking simply about mainstream medicine. Is mainstream medicine highly effective and guaranteed? By no means. In fact, I would venture to say, this might sound radical to you, we don't actually have a cure for anything. I'll say that again. We don't have a cure for anything. We can help a lot in many circumstances, but definitive cure, we don't have. Definitive cure. Those were hidden in a book called the Sefer Arafuas, hidden by King Chizkiah. We're going back more than 2,000 years. We no longer have definitive full cures. By the way, we don't have definitive and full cures in the alternative therapy arena either. Nevertheless, we're obliged to do what's normal. So let me put this to you as succinctly as I can, very briefly. The Torah says you shall heal. Rapa yurape. You shall heal, certainly heal, which means permission to seek medical healing from a doctor and permission and a mitzvah for the doctor to heal. Great. Here's the problem. 
You go to your doctor, you knock on his door, you walk into your doctor's office, surgery, doc, I'm here for treatment. Now, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. The Torah says you have an obligation to do that. The problem is when the doctor says, take this little blue tablet or this little pink tablet, the Torah doesn't ratify that particular tablet. The Torah says, go for medical treatment. But which treatment? Which operation? Which tablet? The Torah doesn't say. The answer is what's normal in your time and place. Not because that's the correct treatment, but because it's normal in your time and place. God heals you according to the best standard of what's normal and accepted. People who grasp at straws, some disease, trying every possible therapy, five different opinions, all sorts of alternatives, that is out of order. That's overdoing things. How many locks do you need on your door? What's normal in your time and place? If you live in a city where people have two locks on their door, less is negligent and more is a lack of faith. And that's the attitude that you should have. When you go to your doctor, you take the conventional treatment, not because it's guaranteed, and knowing that in five years' time, this will be outdated and surpassed. But because it's normal in your time and place, that's all you need to do. No more than that is necessary, but also no less. Would you say that a second opinion is called the norm today? The answer to that is where it's normal, it's normal. Where it's not, it's not. not Not for a cold. Indeed. As it happens, we can't do much for the common cold, but that's another another embarrassing admission from a doctor. But be that as it may, when you are going for a, an opinion and you're dealing with an expert and he's, he or she is telling you that's something that is completely mainstream in this area and you have confidence in your doctor. And by the way, the Torah says very clearly our rabbinic codes say, based on, on spiritual deep sources, one does not merit to be healed by just anyone. There's a special relationship. The Talmud says something amazing. The disease is sent to you with instructions. The disease receives instructions. Enter that body at this time and do not leave until that time. And only by means of certain medications and only by means of a certain healer. Amazing. Which is why, for example, a person whose life's in danger may travel on Shabbat to a more distant doctor, even if there's an adequate one nearby, if you have more confidence in the distant one. There's a special relationship, and not just anybody merits to be the healer or the agency of healing in this case. In circumstances like that, you don't need a second opinion. But where it's acceptable, it's a difficult and subtle judgment. Many diseases today are complicated enough that there may be legitimate different opinions. In that case, and any decent doctor should be totally in favor of the patient getting another opinion. You certainly should have the humility to do that. The obvious problem is what happens when the second opinion differs <laughs> with the first. We have a general principle in Judaism. We go to a third and we choose the majority. Absolutely. Why not? So I think good judgment is needed. When you go to a competent surgeon and there's one clear indication for an operation, it's clearly the one to do, there's no need for a second opinion. If you want reassurance, by all means. If it's a subtle question where expert opinion may differ, by all means. But to run around for opinion after opinion just because you're highly anxious in that area, that can be dysfunctional. It can, in fact, be paralyzing. Right. Well, okay. So to come back to COVID and the vaccines... It started off with Pfizer, was all over the news, then AstraZeneca, Oxford came along, then Moderna, then Johnson & Johnson, which I always thought was a baby shampoo, but it turns out they're doing vaccines too. People are very wary, for example, about the Oxford. I went to the clinic myself and everyone's just saying, I I want the Pfizer, I don't want the Oxford, because they read in the news that causes blood clots. And then they could read about vaccines in general. There could be infertility issues. There's so many risks. What do we do about that? Do we get vaccinated against the risks? Right. Well, let me point out, you said there are so many risks. There's so many potential risks. Potential. Okay. Yes, possible risks, indeed. Again, the answer goes back to what I said before. When a thing is established as normal, then one is allowed to do it and indeed obliged. The problem with the vaccines today, not quite yet normal and broadly accepted. 
Again, there's a red line between something that is broadly accepted and known to be, for example, let's say a tetanus immunization or whooping cough or measles that we've been doing for many, many years, BCG against TB and so on. Those things are clearly obliged, clearly obliged. They're normal, established, known to be effective. And as I said before, the standard is not the percentage effectiveness. The standard is that it's the responsible, normal thing to do. The problem with the COVID vaccines is that we're at the cusp of new discovery. You may or may not know that the vaccines around the world today have been approved only under emergency use approvals. Okay, that means emergency use, which means that they're new. The information and the data is being gathered all the time. We can't approach any of the COVID vaccines today and say a person's obliged to have it because it is widespread, normal, and been around for many, many years. No. However, it has been used by millions, and the majority of experts around the world are clear that these things ought to be used. The risks appear to be extremely low. Of course, we don't know about long-term consequences. And therefore, it's a matter of rabbinic and medical judgment. At what point does it become acceptable and indeed obligatory? I'll give you my personal opinion. I personally feel at this particular point in time, and I'm saying that as of May 2021, because this changes week by week, I personally feel that the evidence for all the vaccines, by the way, I wouldn't make a distinction between the ones you mentioned in particular, the instance of blood clots in the, in the sinuses of the brain, even if it's correct, the numbers are extremely small. Indeed, we accept vaccines knowing that they have risks and even, even known risks. We do it because the risks of the vaccine are far less than the risks of the disease, and that's the correct procedure from a Jewish point of view. Even though I am now causing harm in my attempt to prevent harm, no question that's not only allowed but societally obliged in Judaism. So I wouldn't make that particular, obviously, if one has a risk of 10 in a million of blood clots and the other one doesn't, if you have the option, yes, I think one should tend in that direction, but I don't think it makes much difference. I would say this, my personal opinion today with the evidence as it stands at present, and I keep up with the literature and I'm in touch with various experts around the world, I think today that people who are at risk of getting COVID, that means a person with comorbidities, an older person in a community where COVID is active, I think those people should be vaccinated. Should children be vaccinated at this point? I don't think so. Personally, I think that children, young teenagers, I'm not talking about where there's a special reason, like for example in Israeli society, where you can virtually be guaranteed to immunize everyone, including younger people, which then makes a radical difference to society in general, benefits the young people too. That's a different question. But in India or in the United States or a place where we haven't even talked about vaccinating everyone yet en masse, I think probably it makes sense to start with those who are vulnerable, whose lives are clearly threatened, and perhaps wait a little longer. You know, when the smallpox vaccine came out, one great Hasidic Rebbe told his own daughters, right? He was discussing it with his own daughters and he said, the smallpox vaccine is amazing and it's a godsend. You girls don't have to be among the first hundred to get it. Okay, it's wonderful, it's great. You don't have to rush to be the, you know, after, you know, necessarily. So I think that a little bit of wise balancing here is appropriate. I think as to my prediction is that as time goes by, we'll see that they turn out to be safe and effective. And I think that's okay. If it turns out that there are some complications, whether they're clots, blood clots, whatever it is, if they are of the order of magnitude that they appear to be at the moment, I don't think that will change anything. Polio is a very effective vaccine. Every year, a few kids, about eight or nine children in America, get, get polio from the vaccine. How's that acceptable? Even at times where no one's getting the normal disease. Well, the answer is no one's getting the normal disease because two million children are immunized. So the price we pay for that is eight or nine cases that we cause, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But that is a correct calculation in society, and one needs enough divine belief, enough faith to know that if somebody got harmed by doing that, this was divinely ordained and not an irresponsibility. 
So again, in summary, we need to give a very close eye on the data coming through, and that's being very well done at the moment. And with the hypersensitive awareness when side effects seem to be coming forward, but I think that we are moving towards a situation where the vaccines are proving to be safe and may radically change our society. Finally, let me point out to you that COVID isn't only life-threatening because it may kill an individual. When it locks down a society, that costs lives too. That costs lives. My daughter lives in South Africa. A couple of months ago, she told me that her maid, her helper, you know, comes in to help her, a black woman from one of the townships in Johannesburg. She told my daughter, she said, she called up and she said, look, you have to employ me today. If I don't work today, I don't eat today. We're talking about if I don't work today, I don't eat today. So being locked down and not being able to work, it's a life and death question as well. And do you have a percentage of, let's say, England, that if they were to be vaccinated, then the rule of Doshboya Rabban, which you mentioned earlier, that Hashem almost changes nature in order for it to work with what we see in front of us, would you have, let's say, 80-90% of England being vaccinated that Hashem would change the rules? I don't know what that figure is. I don't think anyone does. Um, there's one way to approach your question is what percentage of people need to be vaccinated to generate what we call herd immunity? And the opinions of that are shifting at the moment. It was around 60%. Now, many experts are upping that to 70, maybe 80. In case of a disease like measles, you need 95% or more. A COVID, probably less. So the technical answer to your question, how many need to be vaccinated before we can regard society as safe enough, is not quite agreed yet, and there's, uh, the details get a bit messy. From a halakhic point of view, it's not only a question of numbers, it's a question of time as well. This thing needs to be around for long enough that we are medically reassured, and society has sort of accepted it as a general, normal sort of a thing. Is that a season, two seasons, three? I wouldn't like to give an opinion about that. I think we'll have to judge that as it goes. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Tantz, for giving us your valuable time in order to talk to us about this very relevant and timely issue that's on all of our minds. Any comments, feedback, suggestions for future topics can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Make sure to join us again for episode two on COVID-19, same time, same place, next week.